1: states his purpose in Colossians 1, 28 and 29 we proclaim Christ so that if possible we may bring everyone up to his full maturity in Christ Jesus this is what I'm working at all the time with all the strength that God gives me I don't know a better statement of what I would like to do and what I certainly aim to do To bring my radio listeners, those who read my books, and those who are kind enough to actually come and sit on a Saturday morning and listen to me talk, to help to bring you up to full maturity in Christ. And it is certainly what I'm working at all the time, with all the strength that God gives me. You know that today's theme is how to gain what you can never lose. And there are two ways of doing that. The title of my first talk is the first way, Let Go. When I was a little girl, my parents once or twice, I think, took me to the Ringling Brothers Barnum and Bailey Circus in Philadelphia. And most of all, I loved the animals. I still love animals. But secondly, I think I loved Most, the trapeze artists. And you've all seen those incredible people who get up there at the very top of the tent and do these unbelievable things on these thin little bars, swinging violently back and forth. And that heart-stopping moment when one of them lets go and you think that they're going to fall and lo and behold they fly through the air and grab another trapeze. They couldn't grab the other trapeze without letting go of the first one. Very simple illustration of what we're going to be talking about today. And in Jim Elliott's letter to his parents, when he was pondering going to the mission field, he had made up his mind that he was going to be a foreign missionary in South America. He wrote this letter to his parents On August the 8th, must have been about 1950 or so, I've forgotten just what the date is here. I do not wonder that you were saddened at the word of my going to South America. This is nothing else than what the Lord Jesus warned us of when he told the disciples that they must become so infatuated with the kingdom and following him that all other allegiances must become as though they were not, and he never excluded the family tie. In fact, those loves which we regard as closest, he told us, must become as hate in comparison with our desires to uphold his cause. Grieve not, then, if your sons seem to desert you, but rejoice, rather, seeing the will of God done gladly. Remember how the psalmist described children. He said that they were inherited from the Lord and that every man should be happy that ha- who had his quiver full of them, and what is a quiver full of... But arrows, and what are arrows for but to shoot? So with the strong arms of prayer, draw the bowstring back and let the arrows fly, all of them, straight at the enemy's hosts. Does it sound harsh, so to speak? Surely those who know the great passionate heart of Jehovah must deny their own loves to share in the expression of his all of you who are parents of grown children remember the various breaches when you had to let go of those children. Sometimes it's just the weaning process if you've been breastfeeding your baby. There comes the point where you must let go. And certainly the first day that that child goes off to nursery school or kindergarten can be a heartbreaking day for the mother. And gradually, throughout the growing up years, we must let go in various ways. And finally, the time comes when we must let go of our children altogether and turn them entirely over to God, and from then on, they are fully responsible before God for the making of their own decisions. And I think one of the tragedies of modern life is that some young people are not only not wanting to grow up, but not being allowed to grow up. Because their parents are paying all their bills and making all the decisions. Maybe not making their decisions, but even though they're not making their decisions, they're paying their bills. I run into people like this all the time, and I meet the old, middle-aged parents who are saying to me, what can we do with our 28-year-old son who doesn't want to work? And my answer to that is, give him an ultimatum, say two weeks, and after that, kick him out. And they look at me in absolute horror and shock, and I say, well, you're not doing your son a favor if you stultify his growth by continuing to support him. But we have to let go. And both the cases of that I've illustrated the trapeze artist and the letting go that Jim Elliot's parents suffered through and they were very godly people very godly people fully fully understanding of the missionary life but when it came right down to letting their own sons go and Jim's older brother Bert had already gone to Peru that was a different story wasn't it and some of us know how that feels I have talked to young people for years, trying to encourage them to be missionaries. And when my son-in-law and daughter decided that perhaps God was calling them to some foreign field, my heart shrank. And I thought of the words of the psalmist, My flesh and my heart faileth. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. But in both cases, it is a dangerous relinquishment A very dangerous relinquishment for the trapeze artist who lets go of the one trapeze in order to fly across and grab a hold of another one. And very dangerous and risky when people step out on faith. Dangerous from the standpoint of worldly thinking. Actually, there is no place in this world that's safe, really safe, except the will of God. Do you know... Any other place? I don't. And yet God does ask us to walk into danger at times and take risks. So in both cases, there it was a dangerous relinquishment. And in both cases, it was with a clear purpose. The only reason the trapeze artist lets go of one trapeze is in order to grab the other one. The only reason that Jim Elliott's parents had to let go of him and let go of that love that they had for their son was in order to love God, which means being obedient to God. Letting go is what I'd like for us to think about this morning. People have died for entertainment. I don't know what the statistics are on how many circus performers have died, but many have. And people have died for obedience to God, and the statistics would be out of sight on those. There would be tens of thousands, very very likely millions, who have died in obedience to God. Now, how to gain what we can never lose? Does it sound preposterous to say that it's possible to gain anything that we can never lose? Well, in this world, yes, it is preposterous. But there are two worlds, aren't there? Two worlds, and the question that I want to ask this morning is, which one matters most? To you, where is your heart? And Jesus said, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. We live in this tangible world. Let's think first about that. And I see that there are a few of you with notebooks and pens, so I'm going to try to help you with your outline. I'm going to tell you what I'm going to say, and then I'm going to try to say it as clearly as I possibly can. It's clarity we aim for. (laughs) And then, if I remember, I hope I remember to tell you what I've said. So that if you go home and your husband says, well, what in the world did she talk about? You'll be able to give him at least three things. And maybe you'll also give him a book too, okay? The world we live in is the first thing that I want us to think about. It is a limited world. It is a doomed world. It is a world of physical, tangible, visible, and, of course, very many invisible things. But even the invisible things have mostly, or how do we know, let's say many, have been explored by the microscope and by science But it's a very different kind of a world. But the fact is that you and I live in this world. And here's a whole physical, tangible room full of physical, tangible bodies. A room full of women, all of whom have been given one body in which to glorify God and a body that represents femininity, uh, tall or short, white or black or some other color, fat or thin, old or young, and some of you might actually be middle-aged, but if I were to ask for a show of hands of how many of you are middle-aged, I don't think anybody is, right? And I'm always being told that I'm not old, which I think is absurd. It's just an absolute denial. You know, that's one of the things psychiatrists are really uptight about these days, that everybody's in denial. And if I, at the age of 65, were to say, oh, no, I'm not really old, that would be denial. Uh, (Laughter) I'm old, and I've been old for, let's say, at least 15 years, okay? Between 40 and 50, maybe you can say you're middle-aged because you're expecting to live to 80 or 100, right? If you're 50 years old and you're expecting to live to 100, you're still middle-aged. But if you're 51, um, it's dubious. (laughs) Anyway, having said all that, may I see the hands of the middle-aged people here? five people they're middle-aged between 40 and 50 that's wonderful thank you for being honest anyway we live in a body and our bodies are more or less firmly attached to souls which is invisible the soul is invisible but we have to eat and we have to wear clothes and we have to wash the clothes and we have to iron the clothes and we have to mend the clothes and we have to buy the clothes and we have to buy the clothes for our children and we have to feed probably somebody else most of you And we do cooking and all the rest of it. And we deal with dirt every day in our houses. And we deal with clutter in our purses. (laughs) Have I said enough about that? I probably already said too much, right? But we live in a world in which those who are worldly-minded, those whose minds are set on this world, those whose treasure is in this world, feel desperate to get everything that anybody can get in this world. My husband, Ad Leach, and I want my husband, Lars, I don't know where he is now, but um, he often says to me, you know, you talk about Jim Elliot a lot, but you leave Ad out, so don't leave him out so often. So Ad Leach used to be the uh, counselor in a boy's camp, I think for 19 straight summers he counseled and taught swimming and was the lifeguard and all of that sort of thing. And he said that one day... When the parents were dropping off their little boys for the week, he overheard one mother say to her son, Now, Aby, I want you to be sure that you get everything that every other boy gets. What kind of instruction is that? Make sure you get what anybody else is getting in this camp. But that is, of course, a perfectly normal and natural desire for those whose hearts are set on the things of this world. It's perfectly natural. Well, what does the world want? A couple of years ago, there were two books that came out that were both very popular. One was Money, Sex, and Power, and the other was Power, Sex, and Money. Now, I would doubt that I need to ring the changes very vehemently on the subjects of money, sex, and power to this audience, although we do, all of us, like money. I would hope we don't love it with a passion. The Bible says that it is the love of money that's the root of all evil. The Bible never says that money is in itself evil. And those of us who are married, I would hope, do enjoy sex, But we're not going to go into that subject today. And as for power, what about power? Who wants power? Well, all of us in one form or another, even if it's the most subtle forms of power. But we like comfort. Almost all of us want a little understanding. And we would like to have a little bit of love. And we would like to be happy. Aristotle said, All men seek happiness. There are no exceptions. And I would agree with that. There are no exceptions. We all want to be happy, but the great dividing line is where we expect to find that happiness. And the Lord Jesus came to give us joy, bliss, fulfillment, far more a far higher thing and a far more long-lasting thing than the happiness that the world can offer. Now, if we were to get money, sex, power, love, understanding, consolation, comfort, would that be enough? And, of course, if that poor little boy had succeeded in grabbing everything that any of the other little boys got during that week, it wouldn't be enough, would it? Have you ever met anybody who thought they had enough money? My husband and I had a very interesting dinner one night with an extremely interesting, colorful, and charismatic woman who had been a model and had quite an interesting checkered past. And she had been on drugs, among other things. And she was talking about just this very thing, because she'd only been a Christian about eight or ten years. And she was telling us of how desperate one is when one is on drugs. And she said, if you have a $20,000 a month habit, you've got to have... $30,000 the next month, or you're gonna go crazy. It's never enough. And just recently, my husband was in Florida where he saw an incredible yacht docked in a certain yacht basin, and he and a friend were wondering who it belonged to. It was the biggest yacht they'd ever seen, and pretty soon there was an article that came out of it, came out in the newspaper about it. I think it was something like, uh, 192 feet long it had 40 tons of marble in it in the bathrooms and the stairways and whatnot it had two cars on board it had a yamaha upright piano and a steinway grand piano and just on and on and on it was a long article with all the things that this man had on board that yacht and i thought it's probably Maybe the most luxurious private yacht in the world, but whoever reads that, they're going to be somebody that reads that article and makes up his mind that he's going to have a bigger one. Will it make him happy? That's the question. You remember the story in the scriptures that Jesus told about the man who was very successful as a farmer, and he had to tear down his barns and build bigger ones, and that was his life ever bigger and bigger barns. And the word to him was, Thou fool, this night shall thy soul be required of thee. For what doth it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? If you ever had everything you ever wanted, it wouldn't be enough. So what is unlosable in this world? Well, let me read you several passages of scripture that talk about the things which are unlosable. 1 Corinthians 3.12 And because of this mic, I'm having a hard time seeing around it to the tiny print of my Bible. So excuse me if I take a minute to find it here on the page. If any man builds on this foundation using gold, silver, costly stones, wood, hay, or straw, his work will be shown for what it is because the day will bring it to light. It will be revealed with fire, and the fire will test the quality of each man's work. In my biography of Amy Carmichael, the story is told of how when she was just a little girl she and her brother were walking home from church with the family as was their custom on Sundays. And as they walked through the streets of Belfast, they met a little old woman struggling along in the wind and the rain with a great heavy load on her back. She was in such rags, she looked, Amy Carmichael said, like a bundle of feathers. And the two children knew that they should help her. But she said, we were not finished saints, we were just two little children. And we were embarrassed and we did not want to go over and help that woman to carry that load. But suddenly there flashed into her mind these words from scripture. Wood, hay and straw, gold, silver and precious stones. And at that moment she said the course of her life was set. She would build in gold and silver and precious stones. In other words, build not for this world, but build for another world, a totally different level. Because the wood and the hay and the straw will be destroyed in the fire. Every man's work will be tested. And the fire will reveal the quality of the work. Think about the quality of the work you're doing, not just the work that you think of as being work for God, but all the work. And I would hope that there are some here who understand already that everything we do, all work, can and should be done for God. And maybe before the day is over, we'll all understand that a little bit more clearly Another passage, 1 John 2.17. This is a passage that I thought about many times after my husband Jim Elliott was killed in South America in 1956. You remember that there were five American missionaries that went into a savage tribe with the hope of making friends with those people and taking the gospel. And they had a friendly contact, but two days later they were all speared to death. And the word was flashed around the world, and reporters came to visit the Missionary Aviation Base to discover why and what had happened. And the why, of course, was a question that made absolutely no sense to anyone whose sights are on this world. And we widows were hard-pressed to try to explain to these people why those men went in there. They weren't anthropologists, they weren't scientists, they weren't looking for oil and rubber and gold. It was not a stunt. They were not adventurers. They were not looking for heroics. So what in the blankety-blank, these men said to us, were they there for? Didn't they know any better? Didn't anybody realize that these people killed strangers? Yes, we we knew that. We didn't know much else about them. We knew that they were stone age and we knew that they were naked and we also knew that they killed every stranger that had ever gone in there. As far as we knew, nobody had ever come back alive. So... Why? It was to gain what they could never lose. But they lost their lives. Well we can all lose our lives, can't we? We're all going to. It's appointed unto man once to die. Our lives are not things we can hang on to. And Jim Elliot had written in his diary when he was twenty two years old, he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Now what is it? Well, I gave at least one of the reporters, I think, this verse in 1 John 2.17. The world and all its passionate desires will one day disappear. But the man who is following the will of God is part of the permanent and cannot die. Two worlds. The temporal and the eternal. The burnable and the incombustible. Or you could say the combustible and the incombustible. Gold, silver, and precious stones are incombustible. Wood, hay, and straw are combustible. The temporary and the permanent. The world and all its passionate desires, this world and all its passionate desires, Will disappear it's temporary but the man was following the will of God is part of the permanent and cannot die now that makes no sense whatsoever to a non-christian because Christians are people who have to stand on their heads in order to make sense out of things Christians are people whose lives don't make any sense except in terms of another world Very recently, I was talking on the subject of missions to a group of young people, and one of the questions that came to me following my talk was, how can I explain to my non-Christian parents my motivation in wanting to be a foreign missionary? And I said, you can't. They will not understand this. But Jesus said, unless you are prepared to forsake your father and your mother, you cannot be my disciple. You can give them these scripture verses and maybe the Spirit of God will sink those words deep into their hearts and someday they may understand them. But it doesn't make sense in terms of this world. So, one more passage of scripture, 2 Corinthians 4, verses 17 and 18. For our light... And momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory. I want you to notice momentary troubles, eternal glory. There is a link between our momentary troubles and eternal glory. Have you thought about that? Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So, verse 18, we fix our eyes not on what is seen, but on what is unseen. For what is seen is temporary, and what is unseen is eternal. Now, that was the passage that most profoundly comforted and changed my perspective after my husband Jim was killed. Of all the verses that people sent me and all the letters that I got following his death, and there were many hundreds, nothing so gripped me as those words. These little troubles, Philip's translation puts it, which are really so transitory And I thought about the fact, who is it that's saying this? It's the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul was a man who had been shipwrecked and starving and naked and stripped and flogged and beaten and put in prison not once but several times. And Paul saying these little troubles, which are really so transitory, are Achieving for us an eternal glory. So we live in this world and all the things that trouble us and all the little things that needle us and the upsets and the canceled flights and all the rest of the things about which our immediate reaction is an automatic, oh no, the least little thing, a run in your stocking when you have to get up on the platform, oh no, you know, big, Tribulation, right? You get to the airport and the man on the curb who's going to check your bag says, Sorry, that flight's been canceled. The next flight was was about three hours, three and a half hours later. You know, my times are in his hands. And it is these little troubles which are achieving for me an eternal weight of glory. It's staggering. It's absolutely staggering. And so now you see that there is a bridge between this world and point two, which is the unseen world. Point one, the world we live in. Point two, the unseen world. And the unseen world is permanent, invisible, eternal. It's there and not here. Now I want to read you a glimpse of the glory of that world. Revelation chapter 5. And I had a hard time narrowing down what to read you from, to give you a glimpse of that other world because it is so indescribable and so unimaginable and I think all the strange and un- incomprehensible things in Revelation, in the book of the Revelation, just illustrate to us the impossibility of our having any idea, any very clear idea of the glory and the wonders and the marvel and the joy that heaven is going to hold. And when we try to find out what heaven is going to be like, we just, our minds boggle. And we think, well, you know, wearing a long white robe and a crown and sitting around on a cloud, twiddling away on a harp, that's not my idea of fun. Well, it's going to be so much more than fun that... The mind staggers and human language is inadequate, but here's a a glimpse. John says, I saw on the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll. But no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, Do not weep. See, the Lion of the tribe of Judah, the Root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. Then I saw a Lamb. Now remember, one of the elders had said, you will see a lion, but I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne, and when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Now try to picture a lamb that looks as if it had been sacrificed. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fall down. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased men for God. From every tribe and language and people and nation you have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on earth. And then they all sing, and I'm skipping a couple verses, worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And I think in that list, we find everything that any human being could ever want And the people who struggle so vainly to find things like that here on earth don't have the slightest idea that there is only one in the whole universe worthy to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. A glimpse of heaven, that unseen world. It is possible to gain many things which are losable. And all of us have experienced losses of material things. They're fleeting, they're fragile, they're corruptible, they're losable. I would ask you this morning, what do you really want? What do you really want? More than anything else in the world. Second question, how badly do you want it? Third question, what's it worth to you? How much is it worth? Is it worth letting go of a whole lot of other things? And that brings me to point three. Let go. You've got to let go, as the trapeze artist had to do. And in Pilgrim's Progress, you remember that Pilgrim met various very interesting characters, and among them were Mr. Money Love, and Mr. Buy Ends, and Mr. Love the World, and Mr. Save All, and Mr. Hold the World. And these men are arguing and discussing among themselves this strange character, Pilgrim, Christian, whose religion really doesn't make sense to them. Now these men are all very religious, Mr. Hold the World and Mr. Save All, They're very religious, but Mr. Byens says why they, after their headstrong manner, conclude that it is their duty to rush on their journey in all weathers, and I am for waiting for wind and tide. They are for hazarding all for God at a clap, and I am for taking all advantages to secure my life and estate. They are for holding their notions, though all other men be against them, but I am for religion in what and so far as the times and my safety will bear it. They are for religion when in rags and contempt. But I am for him when he walks in his silver slippers in the sunshine and with applause. How much is it worth to you? Are you prepared to let go? The pathway to peace and to heaven itself to that supreme joy toward which we all press, which is union with Christ himself, is not found through self-expression or self-fulfillment. It's found in the same pathway that Jesus Christ himself took. That pathway is described in Philippians 2, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who, being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing. Taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him. How can we imagine that we will find fellowship with Christ and the peace that only Christ can give if we refuse to take the pathway that Christ took? Your attitude, Paul says, should be like his. And he didn't even think equality with God was something that he had to hang on to, even though he was equal with God. He left it behind. He humbled himself. He came into this world like a slave. And he said to us, the servant is not greater than his Lord. We would like to be recognized, wouldn't we? We would like a little bit of understanding and a little bit of appreciation once in a while. And we would like to be thanked. Is there anything more chilling than not being thanked when you've done something which perhaps was quite a bit of trouble and very inconvenient and nobody thanked you? In fact, as far as you can tell, not a soul even knows you're the one that did it. Somebody else might have gotten the credit. How does that go over with us? When we examine our reactions to that sort of thing, in honesty, how many of us could possibly say that we know anything at all about humility? Let go of your insistence on recognition and appreciation and position. The pathway to the cross is not the pathway of the unfolding of our natural powers or the use of our gifts. And I'm thinking here of what we think of as talents and that sort of thing. Of course they are from God. And there are times when God gives us the privilege of using them And most of the time, we're not using them. Those special talents that you think you have, how much, what percentage of the time are you actually using those talents? Not very much. Most of the time, God gives us very common and ordinary things to do. And he asks us to let go of our pride. Humility is an active gesture of giving up the position that we think we have a right to. And if there's one area where this cuts deeply in most of us women's hearts, it's the area of submission to our husbands. The Bible is very clear that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, and they don't do that perfectly, do they? Because they're sinners. And if they don't do it, then we think, why should I submit? And so we don't do that either. And we've got one sinful man and one sinful woman living together, and there's going to be conflict and problems. Humility is an active gesture of giving up the position to which we think we have a right. Jesus said, in the world... The leaders lord it over other people. It shall not be so among you. If any of you wants to be first, he must be last of all. If any of you wants to be great, he must become small. I heard of an old saint, a woman who was dying and they asked for a last word and she said, make yourselves small. Make yourselves very small. Who do we think we are? Do we really want to gain what we cannot lose? I think of the various positions that God has put me in. The position of a wife, of a mother, of a grandmother, of a friend. I have a job to do. I have a church that I'm to go to. What am I in all of those places? A handmaiden. That's all I am. A servant. A slave. A bond slave, Paul said, of Jesus Christ. Completely at his orders. Anything you say, Lord, here I am. Well, that hurts, doesn't it? If somebody actually treats you like a slave... It's one thing to say I'm a handmaiden, I'm a servant, and the minute somebody actually treats me like a servant, whoa, as the young people say, oh, I'm like, whoa. (laughs) Hmm. But you know, we, we have got to be pierced, struck, wounded to the core of our hearts by those words of Jesus, the servant is not greater than his Lord. Did he receive appreciation? Thanks? Encouragement? Affirmation? No. Quite the opposite. Rebuke, scorn, mocking, and finally, thorns and nails. Will you come with me, he says. Will you let go of the things of this world and come with me. Will you leave behind your fear? Your anger? Your dread of loss? Anybody here dreading loss? Anybody here with burdens too heavy to be born? God didn't give them to you. God never gives us a burden too heavy to be born. He says, take my yoke and learn of me, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light, and you will find rest. Your secret sins, will you let go of those, the ones you hardly dare to articulate even to yourself, let alone to God, your heaviest burdens? If we are going to gain what we can never lose, we have to let go. Give it all to Jesus. God bless you.
0: I pray you've been encouraged and inspired by what you've heard today and will keep joining us here and on social media for My Granny's Inspiration. Until then, remember... The Eternal God is your refuge, and underneath are the everlasting arms.